If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. When you have a large family, uh, and they get to a certain age, at least your oldest, what we have found is that the milestones in life seem to come quickly. Many different milestones. I just think back over this summer, we had a number of major ones. I mean, just last week, we took our daughter Ruby to college at Moody Bible Institute, which was fun and exciting. This coming week, our youngest, Nevaeh, is going to kindergarten. Lord, help her teacher, (laughs) who is in this church. (laughs) Earlier in the summer, uh, we had a couple of big milestones with our oldest daughter. She graduated college, and she was married to Ethan Adams. I got to thinking about that process with them. Um, And when Ethan came to me and asked if they could date, I had a question for him. It was the same question that I had for Evan in trying to assess, why do you really want to do this? This was the question I said to Ethan. Ethan, what do you see in Evan? And to Evan, I asked the same question. What do you see in Ethan? You see, they had known each other since they were born in the nursery, in this church. They came up through Sunday school together. They went to kids camp together. They were in youth group together. They knew a lot about each other. A lot of information about the other person. But what I wanted to know was what did all of that add up to? What did they see in the other person? Beyond physical appearances, what were their conclusions? What did they see? And as they continued to date um, throughout college, occasionally when they were back in town, Maggie and I would get them together to see how things were going and we would ask the same type of question. What now? What do you see in Evan? What do you see in Ethan? And it brought clarity to the reason that they were dating, and ultimately to the reason that they got married. Well, I want to ask the same question of you this morning. But I'm not talking about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse. I want to talk about Jesus. What do you see in Him? If you've spent any time in the church, if you've grown up in the church, or maybe you haven't, maybe you've just been here for the last few months and we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew together you know a lot about him you know what the Bible says about him that he was the one that the Old Testament scriptures anticipated would come as Messiah to deliver God's people you know what he said You know what he did, the claims of authority that he made about himself, the the works of great wonder and power, miracles, healings, all of those things. You know a lot about Jesus. 
But what does it add up to? What do you see in Him? As you learn about Jesus along the way in your life, there comes moments when it's time to ask the question. That's where we're at today in our text in Matthew. We've come to a moment where it's time to come to some conclusions, to maybe even make some decisions. What do you see in Jesus? And what will you therefore do with Him? Our passage this morning is divided into three sections that take place in three different locations. And there are three different interactions with Jesus. The first is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or maybe there's a confrontation would be a better way to put it. The second location is probably in a boat on the other side of the lake, and that's an interaction between Jesus and His disciples where He warns them and even rebukes them. The third is at Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of there, where Jesus has an interaction with all of the disciples, but a very clear interaction with Simon Peter. Each of these different interactions between Jesus show us different ways we, a person, can see Jesus. And one of these ways may represent where it is that you find yourself this morning. But ultimately, what we are going to see is that there's only one way to come to see Jesus the way that He needs to be seen. And that after we gain that clarity of sight, that there is something that we must do in response. So, let's dive right in and read this passage. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 16, verses 1 to 20. The Pharisees and Sadducees came... And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember? 
The five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What do you see in him, in Jesus? That's our question this morning. This passage presents three different ways of seeing. And then like I mentioned earlier, at the end, we're going to see that there's only one way to really come to a clear line of sight on Jesus. And then there's something that we need to do in response to that. So let's begin with the first group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verses 1 to 4. What do they see in Jesus? So we look at this interaction between Jesus and these religious leaders, we learn this, that some refuse to see Jesus as Messiah. Some refuse. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to him on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, likely as an official delegation from Jerusalem. They are sent to find out what it is that is going on. They've heard reports of what Jesus has been saying and doing, claims of authority that He has made, displays of power that no one is denying, miracles that are unquestionable, and reports that some are beginning to wonder Could this be the Messiah? The one thing you may have not noticed as we read through this is who it is that is on the scene here. This is the first time we see these two groups of people together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're going to play a prominent role at the end of the story in Matthew as well, but this is the first time we see them together. And it's odd. 
Why is it odd? Because these two groups basically have nothing in common. They can't stand each other. They don't even agree about what books make up the Bible. They don't agree on the resurrection. One group is very conservative. The other group is known as much more liberal. So why are they hanging out together? They have nothing in common. Well, actually, they have one thing in common. They are against Jesus. They are so against Him that they're willing to put their major differences aside to put this one common element in the forefront. And they come to Him. But do not be mistaken by what they are doing. These are not people who are genuinely seeking evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. They are there, the text tells us, to test Him. They ask for a sign from heaven. Interesting choice of words. He's performed a lot of signs already on earth. Signs that Bible scholars like the Pharisees should know what it all adds up to. Things they've seen that they should be able to come to the right conclusions about. The things Jesus was doing on earth are the very things the Scripture said that the Messiah would do. But they're not enough for them. And so they say, we want a sign from heaven. What are they asking for? I think it's quite literal. They're saying, we want you to do not just something on earth like you've been doing. We want you to do something in the heavens, in the skies. Turn the sun blood red. Darken the moon. Then maybe we'll believe. But Jesus refused to acquiesce their request for a sign in the heaven. Why? Because He knows their heart. And that no matter what He does, they will still refuse to believe that He's the Messiah. He says, you look to the sky and you can tell what's happening with the weather. You know when the time for a storm is going to arrive. But you will never get it that the fullness of time is actually upon you. The sun from heaven has actually showed up on earth. You won't get that. And so the only thing I'm going to give to you is the sign of Jonah. What does he mean there? We've seen this before. The sign of Jonah is the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days in the heart of the sea, in the belly of the big fish, so will Jesus be three days in the grave before He is risen from the dead. The greatest proof ever, the most compelling evidence possible that Jesus is who He claimed to be, who the Bible puts forward as the Messiah, risen from the dead. But as we see in the Gospel of Luke, for people who refuse to believe, they won't believe even if someone should rise from the dead. 
They have hard, evil hearts. What about you? You have a lot of information, a lot of data from God's Word, from things that you've been taught, compelling information about Jesus. What do you see in Him? Are you willing to believe that He is who He says that He is, the Savior sent from God? Let's look now at the second group. Jesus' interaction with His disciples in the boat. What do they see in Jesus? What do they see? What they teach us is that some struggle to see Jesus as the Messiah. So some refuse. Some struggle. I had a struggle of deciding what word to use here. Some fail is quite literally what we see in the passage. You just it can't. The Pharisees, they won't. Some simply can't. That's what I see happening in verses 5 to 12. Following this incident with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus wants to teach His disciples an important lesson. I mean, it's kind of like a parent. Um, something has happened at school. Their kids have seen something on TV or in their neighborhood, and their, their parents want to get them together and teach them something about what has just happened. So this thing that just happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're on the boat, and Jesus is thinking, prime opportunity for a teaching time about the dangers of unbelief. And so he says, beware of, in verse 6, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we see in verse 12 is referring specifically to their teaching. What is the teaching? We don't know for certain, but I think if the Pharisees and the Sadducees both are holding to the same teaching, what's the only thing they have in common? They reject Jesus. So it is a teaching that rejects Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you need to be aware of this because this type of unbelief, it can kind of slowly creep into your heart, but then gain prominence in it and take over just like a little yeast that is put into a lump of dough will work its way in. That's what he wants to teach them. But they don't see it. The lesson is lost on Jesus' closest disciples, the one who are following him around day by day, and he's using this kind of parabolic language all of the time. But they don't get it. They think, oh no, we're, we're busted. We, we forgot to bring lunch again. We don't have any bread in the boat. That's why he's talking to us like this. How this response proves the reason Jesus needs to teach them about the dangers of unbelief. Do you see why I'm saying that? Jesus has already proved to them over and over that they should never have any cause for concern about bread. 
He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Have they forgotten already who's in the boat with them? Did they not get it? If they're having a response like that, we should see how easy it is to fall into unbelief. This is the man, after all, who walked on water, who healed the sick, who cast out demons left and right, who gives sight to the blind. The Messiah is with them. At a minimum, they should see that. If not the greater reality that God Himself is with them. They've been following Him now for two years. Are they still so slow to understand? Do they not yet, notice the word there, perceive? Do they not see? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they have no faith. They refuse to see Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples are struggling to see Him. Jesus says they have little faith. So this is my question. If even Jesus' closest followers failed to see Him rightly and fully, how will any of us ever come to a right understanding and faith in Christ? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've heard the applications in many sermons about sharing your faith, and so you're out there doing that. You're talking to people about Jesus. Maybe there's somebody that for a long time now, you've, you've presented the gospel to them, you've tried to answer their questions, you've maybe provided some evidence that Jesus is who He says that He is. And then you get to this point where you ask them the question that I've been asking you today, maybe in different words. But you say, what do you see in Jesus? Where are you at with all of this? And it's like, nothing. Deer in the headlights. Blank stare. If Jesus' closest disciples struggle to see Jesus rightly, how will we ever come? to see Him rightly? That's the question. Thankfully, we're given an answer in the next episode. In verses 13 to 20, we see this famous interaction between Jesus and Peter at Caesarea Philippi. And it teaches us a fundamental truth of the Christian faith that God must enable people to see Jesus as Messiah. Jesus asks His disciples the question I've been asking you this morning, but in different words. He says, who do people say that I am? What are, what are people saying out there? What are, they're seeing things. What are they saying it all adds up to? They answered Jesus. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, many people clearly see that Jesus is a prophet. Are they right? Yeah, they're right. Jesus is a prophet. He's actually the prophet that Moses predicted would come 
back in the book of Deuteronomy. That is necessary truth, but it's not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. He's more. And so to push into this a little bit further, Jesus asks a more pointed question. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter gives an answer. An answer that is probably representative of the whole group, but it is Simon that we are now focused on in this passage. And he says this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Boom! His eyes are open. He sees it clearly. And Jesus then goes on to affirm that He has seen it clearly. That Jesus is Messiah, the Savior, sent from God. He says, blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah. Or in other words, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. You see it clearly. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop there. He does affirm Peter's profession of faith, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell him where this profession of faith came from. He tells him what made him able to see Jesus in the right way. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's why I've titled this sermon, The Big Reveal. The Pharisees can't see it. They won't see it. Even Jesus' disciples struggle to see it. But then Peter sees it. Why? Because God showed it to him. God revealed it to him. We can have all of the information in the world about Jesus. We can have loads of learning. Kids, students, are you the one in Sunday school class that whenever the teacher asks a question, your hand shoots up or your mouth blurts out the answer? That's good. I'm glad you know what's in the Bible. But there's no amount of knowledge that you can gain that will lead you to a saving faith in Jesus without God opening your eyes to see what it all adds up to and what it matters. It doesn't matter what your theological perspective is here. This is the clear teaching of Scripture that God must work in power if we are come to come to saving faith. In Jesus Christ. Faith is not something that we conjure up on our own. It's not a mark of our intelligence. It must come from God as a gift. Or to put it in other words, and this is the word that I'm going to use for the rest of my time this morning. Faith, having saving faith, is a privilege. It's a privilege. If we want to come and see Jesus the way God wants us to see Him, it's a privilege if we come to see that. But if we come to see that, 
then the question we must ask is, what are we going to do with that revelation? What are we going to do with that clear sight? And this is why I use the word privilege. You've heard it said that with great privilege comes great responsibility, right? So, if we have been given the privilege of revelation from God that Jesus is who He says that He is, if we've been given saving faith as a privilege, what is our responsibility? What are we called to do with that saving faith? And I think that's what Jesus goes on to teach Peter in verses 18 to 20. After affirming his profession of faith, after telling him that this is the result of God's revelation in his life, in verse 18, he says to him, maybe the most controversial uh, verse in all of Matthew, You are Peter, Greek, Petros. And on this rock, Greek, Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, literally Hades, the gates of death shall not prevail against it. Let me read back through it again. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does it mean? Who is the rock upon which Jesus will build His church? I hope that if you are a believer here today, you are with me on the fact that the foundation of the church is Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And yet, not denying that in one one at all, I think what Jesus is saying here is that Peter is... The rock. What do I mean by that? Well, God gives Peter this revelation, this gift of sight that enables him to give this clear profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He will then become the leader along with the other apostles. See this in the book of Acts. In spreading the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus will build his church, but he will use Peter initially to be a key player in this building project. That is not to say that Peter is the Pope. It's not establishing any of that. It's not to say that he's infallible or that he's perfect or that he's more important than the other disciples. He is a first among equals among the apostles, and held a special place in the history of redemption. And so in that sense, he is the rock upon which Christ built his church. Again, my conclusion to this comes not just from a study of these words, but it comes from just looking at what happens in the book of Acts. What happens? Who's prominent in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts? It's Peter. What does he do? He preaches the gospel. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, then to Samaritans, and even to Gentiles who come from the very ends of the earth. And through this gospel ministry, people came to see Jesus in the same way that Peter came to see Him. That He was the Savior of the world. 
And so Jesus was building the church on Peter's ministry initially. God gave him the privilege of seeing Jesus rightly. He was then given the responsibility, along with the other apostles, to take that revelation about Jesus to others. And Jesus used his ministry to build a church that would never be defeated, not even by death. Then in verse 19, Jesus goes on to say, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this mean? Well, again, a very debated passage, one that still divides the church throughout the world, but let's just keep it as simple as we can. What do keys do? They open doors, and then they close doors. So, at a minimum, these keys that are given to Peter have to do with opening and closing. How did this work in the book of Acts? As Peter and the apostles shared the gospel that had been revealed to them, that Jesus was the Messiah, the doors of the kingdom were flung open for people to come into the kingdom if they were given faith that Jesus was the Messiah. But other people who heard that same gospel and refused to believe, the doors were closed to them. And as people believed in the gospel, what happened? They were baptized by these apostles and brought into or added to the church. Those who didn't believe the gospel Did they add them to the church? Did they baptize them? No. And then those who later showed through their actions, their words, Ananias and Sapphira, for example, that maybe their faith wasn't genuine. Simon Magus, maybe another. What happens to them? They're put out of the church. So the gospel ministry opens the door but it also closes the door. That's what I think the keys to the kingdom are. Let me just put it as clearly as I can. I believe the keys involve two things. First of all, the responsibility to preach the gospel. That's the clearest thing. To preach the gospel to the nations. And then to bring people who believe the gospel in to the church. But to keep the door specifically, not the door to this building, it's open to anybody. Anybody. But as our statement of faith says, membership in the local church is for believers only. And so we do keep the door of baptism, the door of church membership closed to those who have not yet believed in the gospel or who refuse to do so. So gospel ministry, bringing people into the church, but also putting people out. This responsibility was given first to Peter 
and the apostles. Does it apply to us today? I believe that it does. We are not Peter and the apostles. We didn't write the New Testament, for example. We didn't establish the apostolic doctrine of the gospel. And yet, there is continuity between the responsibility that was given to Peter and the apostles and the responsibility that the church has. This keys language, this binding and loosing language, it's picked up again in chapter 18 with a clear reference to the church exercising the keys, binding and loosing. Or what about the Great Commission that is given to these same apostles in Matthew 28? Does it not belong to the whole church? So here's my question. If I've lost you in the minutiae of theology and things like that, let me just get back to the question. What should those who have been given the privilege of seeing Jesus rightly do? What is our responsibility? And this is my answer, which is my sermon in a sentence. The privilege of knowing Christ comes with the responsibility to make Him known. John Anderson, you like that? That's kind of the Navigator's mission statement. The privilege of knowing Christ comes with the responsibility to make Him known. If you've come to saving faith in Jesus, you first of all need to know that that is a gift from God. Praise Him! To know Christ is a gift. But with that privilege comes the responsibility to make Him known. We are called, the church is called to go to the nations and make disciples of Jesus Christ to tell others what we see in Jesus and to urge them to believe in Jesus. And if they believe, let's baptize them and bring them into the church. The privilege of knowing Christ comes with the responsibility to make Him known. The privilege of seeing Jesus clearly comes with the responsibility to help others see Him, knowing that God will have to work. And because that's our responsibility, I want to be responsible this morning as a preacher. So I want to close by asking the question I began with this morning. I think we are at a time in the Gospel of Matthew and a time in this service where it's a moment of decision. What do you see in Jesus? What do you see in Him? Do you see that He is God's Messiah? I mean, surely you recognize that He was no ordinary man. The things that He did, the things that He said, all showed that He had the very authority of God at His disposal, working and teaching in power. Is that how you see Him? Do you see that through His death and His resurrection that He has provided a way for you to have forgiveness of sins? 
that He has conquered death once and for all? He did that. Is that the way that you see Him? Do you see that it is only through Him that a person can enter the kingdom of heaven? Only through Him. What do you see in Jesus? It is my prayer that God would work in taking the scales off of your eyes. Some of you here this morning, you know that you don't believe. I'm praying that you will. Others of you here this morning, you think that you believe. But you've not yet come to really see your need for Jesus and that He is the only way. I pray that you come to see that today. That you would believe. That you would embrace Christ by faith. That you would be saved from your sins. And that you would become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. A child of God. Let us pray. Father, what grace is ours. I am so humbled by this reminder this week that my faith and my trust in Christ is a gift from You. So therefore, I give You praise. I give You thanks. And I pray that You would grant that same gift to every single person in this room today. If they're struggling to believe, that You would help the struggle to end today. That they would embrace Christ by faith. We ask in His name. Amen.